Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, my name is Chris Collins. I'm the lead pastor here. If this is your first time or you're just still new to Encounter Church, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you chose this month today to start uh, showing up. I believe that there's something special for you today in today's message. And um, I'm really excited about the series that we've been in over this past month called Chasing Purpose. And the whole heartbeat of the series is that you were made. You were created for a purpose, that there is a reason you exist, and that there is a joy, a unique joy that's discovered when you discover what that purpose is and begin to live it out in all the different areas and arenas of your life, which is why it was really exciting this past week, kind of opened up our life planning. I know some of you are like, did I get in? We actually had more people than we had spots, so we're currently trying to work through because we want to get as many people as possible, so this week you'll find out if you're one of the 12, and you'll also find out if you're one of the bonus people as well, and how we're going to um, hopefully kind of create space so that we can get as many people through that course as possible, and I know there's a lot of details and um, that still be worked out, so you'll get that in the email this week of um, what does this look like, because it is probably one of the most intense journeys you'll ever go on in the course of your life through a process that we have here, but on the other side of the process is a clarity um, and a close approximation of why you were created. Um, in fact, uh, it's almost like uh, this secretive little thing that comes, uh, you, uh, one of the processes is to drive you to two words to sum up your life. And, um, and those two words are really um, precious things that like, I keep in the back of my head whenever I'm walking in to conversations or showing up into the different roles that I have. So really excited for those who've signed up. Um, for those who didn't, um, whose schedules don't align, I uh, know that this is the first of many times that we'll do this at the church. Um, the process was just so intense, we kept the group smaller so that we can navigate through it a little bit faster than normal. So um, with that said, I'm going to move on because I know some of you have wondered that. Um, one of the most dangerous roads in the world, I don't know if you're one of those people who when you go to mountains and they're like, oh, well, here's a really scenic route, but it's a little scary. Um, my wife and I, our family, um, have one of those roads that we took a couple years ago where they're like, it's a beautiful, beautiful drive, but it takes you up to about 11,000 feet. The turns are really tight. Um, and you kind of say, oh, that's going to be awesome. And then you start to get 10,000 feet up and you realize you're right on the edge. And if you fell, you fall. Uh, you just kind of quickly rediscover gravity's love for you and your car, right? And so, like, there's a little bit of, like, daredevilness that comes out of those kind of moments. Um, but I, was com- I came across a list of some of the most dangerous roads in the world, and one of them is kind of terrifying to me. It's called Skipper Canyon Road, and Skipper Canyon Road is in New Zealand. It was originally a mining road uh, because they had found gold, and they were trying to get equipment up to the place where gold was um, in the rocks as quickly as possible. So they carved out this dirt road to get to the top of these mountains and these canyons. And after the gold rush dried up, the road stayed because it connected two points in New Zealand that there hadn't been connection before. And so naturally, people started using this dirt road to get there. In fact, it's one of the um, top uh, tourist attractions in New Zealand for people that go. This is a, a snapshot of a portion of Skipper Canyon Road. Skipper Canyon Road has no guardrails. It is so dangerous that if you rented a car in New Zealand, they will actually tell you that they will not cover any accident if you drive on this road. The road is so narrow at certain points, (laughs) this is the most terrifying part, that if 
you happen to come across another car coming in the other direction, one of you has to back up a really, really long way. And this is kind of a different image, and there is a bridge because why not? And it's a bridge that literally your car just kind of snugly fits into like a glove to drive across. But what's funny is that throughout this road, right before you kind of drive onto it, um, there is a warning that says, you know, danger. If you have a rental car, you will not be covered. And basically tries to talk the driver out of taking it. But for most people, it's such an exciting and thrilling, breathtakingly beautiful drive that people find themselves taking it. And I thought when I read this article that it was really a good um, picture of what it's like to pursue purpose. Purpose is definitely one of those things that a lot of people want, but few people live. Most people go through the motions in their life, and they wake up somewhere down the road, and they're 65, and they wondered what happened. Or they start parenting, and then they, in the couple blinks of an eye and sleepless nights, their kids are 20, and they're moving out of the house, and they wondered, where did the years go? Or people in their marriage look across and wonder, what happened to us? That we all have an intention and a purpose and a desire for it, but it's a very lonely road that few people have the courage to go down. And for the ones that do, there's pitfalls. In fact, that's one of the things that I think most of us don't realize is that the idea of journeying on the road towards purpose, um, we think is going to be a highway that's going to be easy, it's going to be fun, it's going to be awesome because you're finally getting to do what you were created to do. You're finally showing up on purpose, with a purpose, and the, the meetings and the spaces and the relationships that you have. And yet, in a broken world where things naturally drift away as the default from the good, I think one of the things that I would be unhelpful for you if in the midst of the series is if I kind of pointed us through how do we discover purpose, how do we start to live our lives intentionally, and I didn't address the pitfalls that are present on that road. And I want to look at three different pitfalls today, pitfalls that become increasingly dangerous as you try to journey more and more towards your life's purpose. But regardless if you're on that road or not, these are pitfalls that are present in your life and in my life. And to get to there, I want to take you on a little bit of a different route. In some ways, I want to take you through Skipper Canyon, a little bit of a different kind of story on the surface, one that's um, almost extreme to the very essence of the word extreme. It's found in Luke chapter 4, and if you have the Encounter Church app, you'll notice I've already preloaded it for you. Um, it's a passage that maybe you've read before. Um, for those who are exploring the Christian faith or new to the Christian faith, or maybe if you've been, been in the Christian faith for a little bit, this story is going to be so big and so beyond what you and I might think that um, you might feel a little overwhelming at first. But I'm going to give you a little bit of context, and we're going to jump into Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is... Um, following Luke chapter 3, okay, and Luke chapter 3 and 2, those 1, 2, 3 are a buildup of Jesus' birth, and then Jesus' baptism, his kind of 30 years he's lived um, kind of unknown to people in the community, and now he's stepping up into kind of this public sphere, and the first act is to show up as a cousin's John's 
kind of sermon, and John is calling people to kind of get rid of the old way of living for God and step into the new way of living for God. And at the time, this Jewish ritual is called baptism. And so Jesus, as a way to kind of begin to usher in that movement, steps into the water and is baptized as an example of the followers who are going to follow him. That what he's about to unleash, what he's about to usher into um, Israel and ultimately to the world is a different way of thinking about God and a distinctly different way of following him. And immediately following that moment of baptism, we go straight into Luke chapter 4 where Jesus, who has just kind of freshly proclaimed himself to be someone different than all other human beings present on earth, that God himself speaking through the cloud says, this is my son, I'm so proud of him. And this Holy Spirit is flying down like a dove. It's one of the few times in Scripture where this concept of Christian doctrine called the Trinity is present in fullness. All three of them are present in that same moment, and they're all celebrating what's happening. And just that kind of essence of that shift in the story lets you know this is about to get really supernatural super fast. Which is why in Luke 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry, which may be the biggest understatement on planet Earth, right? I have two kids that embody this word if they have an early lunch and a late dinner. Like, you're, like, watching them kind of turn the plastic, like, spoon into a prison shank because, like, they're going to get food from you. Like, it gets dangerous fast in my house because hunger comes quick, right? And so imagine 40 days Jesus has not eaten. And all along, he's in the desert, this horrible wasteland of a place, like, not on TripAdvisor's kind of like place to go and hang out to get a like a retreat, right? Like, it's one of those kind of moments that if I'm being real and I was just like hiking through the wilderness in this moment and I come up and then there's Jesus and he's like 40 days not eaten and smelly and then right beside him is Satan and they're having this like, like debate and dialogue and temptation, I'd be like, clearly I've interrupted something. Jesus... Look forward to seeing you again. Satan, never want to see you again. And then I'm running. Like, this is one of the most insane moments on planet Earth in human history ever. Like, you think walking in on your parents having an argument when you were younger was awkward? Like, the God of the universe and Satan taking some kind of frenemy stroll? Like, that's next level. And I recognize that even as we're about to jump into this story, this may hang you up so much that you're like, I don't even have a box for what's about to happen. I got the road, but now I don't even know what this dude's talking about. I want to encourage you, like driving on Skipper Canyon, just to keep close to me during this thing. Because we're going somewhere. And this story may be extraordinary. I believe this story is true. Right? That I do believe Jesus is God, and I do believe that in this world, we look and there is evil and there is brokenness and there are moments where people embody evilness so much that it helps me to understand how evil can be personified. If you've ever studied history and looked at Pol Pot or Hitler, 
Or look at some of Mao's reactions during the revolution and see how millions of people are Stalin and Lenin and, and the brutality that they are employed. It's not hard when you study history to see human beings who are so marked and kind of, kind of completely mangled with evil that you can sort of see that evil could be personified in a person. It could be embodied in a being. And in the Christian faith, we believe there is a literal being who embodies pure evil. And his name is Satan, or the devil, or Lucifer. Right? Dude's got a lot of names. And he's someone I never want to meet. And when people are like, oh, the devil's messing with me today, I'm like, I hope not. You know, like, you travel to third world countries and, like, in some different spiritual contexts, you're like, we're doing a, you know, exorcism today. I'm like, I'm good. I got to wash my toes. Like, this is freaky stuff. And I get it, okay? But what's about to play out has the power to change your life and my life. And then this story continues. It says, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So Satan's walking him through three different temptations, three different pitfalls. He offers him food. He's now offering him the ability to rule and reign. And he says, so if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then it says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And for it is written, Jesus, well, this is Satan. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him into an opportune time. Probably one of the most scariest sentences like you ever read, like just the idea of like Satan leaving him to an opportune time. And so what's been played out here is pretty extraordinary, almost completely disconnected from your life and my life, right? I mean, this is literally the God of the universe being tempted by the personification of evil as a being named Satan. Not something that's ever going to happen to you, not something that's ever going to happen to me, and own one level of this story, it is it. There is no connection for you and me in this thing. But if I had an hour with you, we could go so far deep into this thing that you would stand in awe at this story and all the figurative, symbolic, like, presence and layers cut into this thing. It is mind-blowing. But let me tell you a different story real quick. You probably are familiar with this, Maybe. There's the story of a Chicago man who comes back from traveling overseas. He's been in China with a group of other people, and um, as he comes back, he's developed a dry cough. He's starting to cough, and he goes to an event where his son is a part of a large group of people, and that transpires, and that cough starts to spread, and his son gets in and it starts to spread through his thing. And what initially just looked like a little bit of a dry cough started to turn into hospitalizations and then started to turn into deaths. And that within just about 47 days, this tiny little virus that had just emerged out of nowhere is now spread to all ends of the earth. And, and in this nation alone, people 
by the tens of thousands are beginning to die every week. That ultimately it will claim almost 600,000 people in the course of this run. And over 100 million people will be infected. You've probably heard that story before, right? Sounds a little familiar. Reality is, though, is that story is actually not the one you're thinking of. It came out of this report, one that actually circulated amongst the government but didn't hit the public sphere until the New York Times uncovered this report specifically. Um, it was called the Crimson Contagion. See, over the course of 2019, the federal government, along with a dozen states, ran a simulation of a virus that emerged in China and began to spread around the world. It's part of something that the federal government does quite a lot. Um, you just don't know about it, where they run simulations and kind of imagine what could happen to identify the things that need to be corrected ahead of time. It's in some different areas, it's called war gaming. Some companies even do this. But in October of 2019, the scenario had concluded, and a report was created, one that you can actually download today and read on the Internet because of the New York Times. And in the course of that report, what you find is some really terrifying warnings that the federal government does not have the systems and structures in place to ramp up testing. The federal government, along with state governments, including our own state government, which participated in this um, exercise, does not have enough PPE present. There's not enough clarity of delineation of authority and who takes the lead in what. And that if something like this actually were to really happen in real life, um, hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost and millions and millions of people would be infected. And at best, it would be a patchwork quilt with people losing trust in the government, a lot of confusion around school closures. And all of that sounds very deja vu. It was all in this report saying to state, local, and federal governments, we need to make adjustments just in case something like this ever happens. And less than 60 days from when this report was done, something did happen. And guess what we all experienced? We experienced the consequences of what they discovered were some of the problems. And the reason I tell you this story is because we literally had some of the solutions to the pandemic sitting in a report on the desk of some of the most powerful people in our nation. And the reason we still walk through the path that we walked is because this thing seemed so fantastical that no one saw it as urgent. No one saw it as relevant. It was just an exercise. And I think if we're not careful, you and I can make the same mistake with the story that I just read of Jesus' temptation. It'd be really easy to condemn those people because of what we now know. But if you and I are not careful, we will do the same thing with the story in Luke chapter 4 and the kind of the historical retelling of what Satan and Jesus' interactions were like in the desert that day. And I would argue that what we just read is essential if we're going to be people who chase purpose. Because underneath that extraordinary layer is actually a very ordinary, very human kind of tendency. That there's a reason Satan chooses three different things. Because those three different things represent three broad pitfalls that will get in the way of you and me pursuing purpose in our life. 
so let's dig into it. The devil said, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, there's a, a deeper story to all of this that I don't have time to get into that, that's a deeper layer of why Satan is choosing these three things. But on the surface, if we're willing to zoom in a little bit, what we realize is that these are actually three different human challenges. The first one is very practical. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's hungry. And so what does Satan say? He's like, well, you, if you're God, then why don't you just make that stone and turn it into a sandwich? You can do that. Let's, let's just do that. But Jesus' response is man doesn't live on bread alone, which is him, his way of saying back to Satan, just because I can doesn't mean I should. And actually, the deeper layer, one that's rooted in a far bigger backstory that anyone Jewish reading this would have instantly started to pick up on very quickly. You have to remember, that Christianity is a fulfillment of Jewish promises. And so there's a, a layer and richness to the Christian faith that, that the more you study Judaism, the, the more it becomes apparent. And this is one of those examples. And so Jesus' response is like, no, no, no. I'm not going to let my appetite, I'm not going to let what I want to consume, consume me. I'm not going to shortchange, shortcut, sacrifice the reason God put me here in order to get this. And the first pitfall is an appetite. Now, I don't mean just being hungry. It's really a bigger, broader thing around the human appetites in general. The appetites, right, no one ever eats a meal and says, man, I'm good for the rest of my life. Have you ever noticed that? No one ever takes a breath and says, oh, I'm good for a little bit. No one drinks a big glass of water and says, well, I'll, maybe next week. There's just some things, appetite, right, that drives us. But what happens is sometimes... The appetites, which are drives in us, start to drive us. And in the course of driving us, they take us to places we never intended to go. Appetite could be in the romantic realm. It could be food. It could be a substance. It could be a pill. Right? The appetite's a really broad, broad category. But all of us know people whose unhealthy appetites cause their lives to be shortened and cause their purpose to be shortchanged. Think of how many politicians who were kind of rising stars who never, ever get to the place they could have gotten because they couldn't control an appetite. The appetite destroyed them. And it undid them. One of the things that's really important to know about all three of these that we'll look at just briefly is that they're all good things. An appetite is a good thing. And Jesus is not knocking the good things that he's being tempted with. What he's rejecting is the good thing becoming a God thing, the all-consuming thing. Money's not bad. But if money's the reason you live, then it is. Right? There's this tendency and this trap these pitfalls that get in the way of us pursuing our purpose. You were made for a reason, and there are things 
that could hijack you on that road and you fall off. The second one is Jesus is taken and in a moment he's given a vision of everything. He's given a picture of all the realities, all the kingdoms. And Satan says, hey, I can give you this. Jesus is like, no. I'll, Satan's like, I got it all. Authority and splendor and power. The ability to have influence. I'll give it to you. And Jesus responds, right? It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him. And in the process, we see the second pitfall, which is authority. Power, control. Think about how many people do you know who got so consumed with the title, got so consumed with the position and the prominence that in the course of chasing after it, they left some other people behind. As a pastor, I get to be around people in the best moments and in the worst moments, I get to oftentimes be present when people step into this world and oftentimes present when people leave this world. And there is a, a distinct sadness I see around this pitfall of people who pursue and build their lives and chase and climb and go up mountains and fight and push people off the ladder so that they can get higher and higher only to realize at the end of their life they climbed the wrong ladder. Because there's something worse than losing, and it's winning in the wrong game. What does it matter if you gain the whole world, if you've got 14 vacation homes, you've got money that you can never spend, but you don't have your family? Or you, in the course of trying to gain control, you lose your reputation or sacrifice your integrity. Why? Because you want power. Again, power is not bad. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it is a bad thing. And the appetite for authority, power, control is one of those pitfalls that we can fall off of. And we live in a culture that oftentimes will celebrate the pursuit of this pitfall. The working ridiculously late hours and sacrificing all these other things for the sake of this thing. We'll celebrate it. But no one ever says, hey, do you know... It hurts when you land in that pit. And then Satan continues. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. You need to understand the context for this one. This one's a little bit, little bit trickier. So the second one was he's probably um, shown some very CGI-oriented kind of moment where it's like all the kingdoms of the world flash in front of Jesus. But this one is more geographically he takes him to Jerusalem and he puts him on the top of the temple, which is roughly about six stories high. Okay, which is a sky, the equivalent of a skyscraper for the ancient world. It's like being on the Empire State Building. Okay, this magnificent, very profound, visually kind of stunning, um, but very public moment. And Satan's like, well, you know, you could jump. And if you jumped, you know what the scriptures say. Angels will catch you. And just think, when you come landing and angels, people are going to be like, what? Who's that man? 
those angels just appeared and they caught him. And he's like, hey, everybody, I'm Jesus. He's like, look, didn't you come to build a following? Didn't you come to get people to know you, to serve you? Like, didn't you come so that they would know you're here for them? Think about how great that moment will be, Jesus. And like, this will be awesome. And Jesus is like, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Which is a weird phrase. It's kind of different. And again, you need to know that this moment has got so much richness and, and kind of historical backdrop to it, so it's a little tricky. But when he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test, he's making an allusion to a moment in Israel's history where their insecurity, their, their inability to know that God loved them and was going to take care of them caused them to act out of that insecurity and do some things that ultimately was testing God, saying, well, God, if you really love me, you'll do this. Right? I mean, that, that's not something other humans do at all, by the way. Well, if you love me, you would. I mean, your kids have probably never said that to you about a phone. Right? But this is what's happening. And Jesus is like, no, no, I don't need to prove that God is with me and for me. I already know that. And I don't need to sell out or sacrifice that in order to build a crowd and to gain other people's approval. Which is the third pitfall. I mean, how many people do you know? I mean, Jenny, actually, was telling me about taking a walk uh, and how she walked by this parent that um, was, I mean, just berating this child. Like, in a, it's, it's a toddler, and it was like, a berating in a level that's not like toddler appropriate. And um, and so my wife walks by and she's like, oh my goodness, like this is really crazy. And then, because they're in a park, she, you know, is watching. And now the woman is putting her toddler up on the tree and is like doing a photo shoot with her phone. And Jenny's starting to realize like this is all about a social media post. That the reason this child was being berated was because this child wasn't cooperating to look like she was having a good time with her mom for a social media post. And it's like, how backwards is that moment? I would rather look like a mom for all the people in the world who are looking through my portal, but I'd rather not be a good mom to my kid. I mean, how many times do we kind of, oh, got the double chin, better take up top, right? I mean, how often do we fall into that trap of spending time consumed, concerned about how many people like our ridiculous dance or our post or our thoughts? The world, this is just a tangent, was a lot better place when we realized that people didn't care about our opinions and we didn't think they did and we didn't have to spend our time trying to share them. 
right? Or the food, I mean, I've talked to chefs. I mean, we have a phenomenal chef who comes to this church, right? And shout out to Nick. And, you know, we were talking about this one day, about how as a chef, one of the things that's kind of gotten into that culture is that when they design dishes, they're thinking about Instagram. And what does it look like? Because that's one of the ways that restaurants can build a following. That we get sucked into this world of approval. What does other people think about me? How many heartbreaks and hang-ups do you have in your relational life? Because of mistakes and choices you made in order to gain someone else's approval. Think of how much hurt you carry. How much regret you still have. Or that you've watched your loved ones have. Because at the end of the day, they were just chasing after someone else's approval. And this is one of the surefire ways. It's another one of those pitfalls to get taken off the purpose and the path that God has for us. Because we get so fixated on what all these other people think. And they're not living your life. They're not responsible for your life. And at the end of the day, they don't even care about your life. And yet we'll make decisions that shape our life based on what others might think. There are things that we will not say. There are things that we will say. There are things that we will do. There are things that we will not do. And it's not guided by any kind of morality or any kind of like value-centric. It's all based on what others will think and approve of. And these three pitfalls are present in this passage. And while this story is extraordinary, I think the pitfalls are quite ordinary. This past week, I came across a phenomenon. I don't know if you know this, but there is a growing, uh, there's a growing industry. It's called social media. And there's a group of people called petfluencers. Petfluencers. And there's actually petfluencer conferences. Because you've built a following from your pet. Well, now you got to go to a conference to, you know, network and build and develop and guide. And one of the growing trends in the pet fluencing market, all right, so if you're looking for a business thing, I'm about to give you one, is what you're looking at right now, this little kitten. This kitten had built a significant following, became a cat. And then it died. And that pet fluencer was finally staring at the bleak reality that without her pet, she had no influence. So what do you do? Well, you can't just go try to, you know, buy another cat that kind of looks like that. Get another kitten, right? We all know that, you know. Replacing an animal that you've been babysitting. We've seen enough TV shows and movies to know that doesn't work. So what do you do? Well, you go to some growing industries that will charge you $30,000 to $50,000 to clone your dead pet. That's a picture of a clone kitten. The same cat that died. I could cycle through pictures, but I recognize that you're not as fascinated as, it, as I am. So I'll spare you. The woman with her wolf dog who passed away. Or the, the family with the chihuahuas, that there are now five of them that they've cloned. Because you never know, one might pass away. 
Because if you're a pet fluencer and your pet dies, your income stream dries up. And there is a whole industry dedicated to cloning pets so that Instagram influencers can see, can, I mean, everyone human beings, okay? Human beings, everyone. Those three pitfalls, there's something that you and I struggle with. The reality is there's probably one of the three that we distinctly struggle with. And I would argue that it's helpful to know which of the three tracks you tend to sink into. I would argue there's probably one, and there's maybe a second one that catches you off guard too. And fortunately for us, Jesus, in that in exchange with Satan, gives us three. And so which one? Is it appetite? Is it the things that you were meant to consume that are starting to consume you? It could be a variety of different appetites. Is it authority and power and control? Stuff? Things that show how important you are? Or is it approval? The concern of what other people might think about you? The reality is that every one of us in this room struggle with one of these three. And we've all struggled with all three of them at some point in our lives. Right? And it's helpful to know which one. I mean, I, I'll confess, this is where I am right now. Because you kind of, as a pastor, you have to have people to be a pastor. Right? And watching a church begin to, like, shrink in the midst of a pandemic. And for, for about a year, I'm in the empty room talking with a camera and some awesome volunteers. And I'm like, you know, and watching people leave and, you know, like the insecurity in me starts to well up. And I start to like feel like I got to hold this thing together, but I know I'm not enough. You ever felt like you're not enough? You know, you'll do stupid stuff when you don't feel like you're enough. You'll do stupid stuff when you don't feel like you have enough stuff that the people around you and you got to compete with them. You got to compare yourself to them. You'll do things you regret because of that. And this, these are pitfalls. And these are struggles. And so which one's yours? Knowing this is mine helps me find out ahead of time because I know when that thing, I, I can see it coming now. I'm like, oh, this is one of those moments. I better be careful because if not, I'm going to faceplant into that thing. You don't have to tell your spouse you don't have to tell your kids. You don't have to tell your parents. But you do need to be honest and tell yourself which one has the tendency to trip you up. Because if you don't, you'll eventually find yourself in it. And if we're going to be people who chase purpose, on the pathway to purpose is these three pitfalls. No exception. It's the rule. And to wrap up, just in a minute, I want to give you, because in the midst of all that warning, what if you're already in a pitfall? What do you do? What if you're already stuck down at the bottom and you're trying to figure out how to get out? Fortunately for us, throughout that entire interchange, Jesus keeps doing something, the exact same thing, that actually points us to how to get out. If you notice, and this is, he says, it is written. All three of the passages that Jesus quotes, because he's quoting three different 
biblical passages. I actually come from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8. So the three passages are, are really confined in a very small section of the Old Testament. The significance is, is how does Jesus deal with the trap that Satan is hanging, hanging in front of him? How does he have a rope to avoid falling into the pitfall and being stuck there? He has truth. Truth. What God has said is how you and I get out of the hole when we fall into it. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. That when you know what it is that you struggle with, then you can begin to intentionally search out the truths to counteract those traps. You can begin to carry around the rope that you need for when you fall into the hole to throw up to climb back out. And so if you know shame and guilt is the thing that entraps you, that that's behind your pursuit for approval, then you start to walk around the truth and knowing that if I am a Christian and I am in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That I am fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm 139. Like you start to be, be able to identify the rope you need to be able to walk that journey. And I want to encourage you, if you've never taken the 112, we're getting ready to start that. Um, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. If you've already taken the 112, you could take it again. Um, the first couple of groups went through a whole lot bigger version. Um, and anyone who's ever been around me knows that I can't do anything without tweaking it and trying to make it better. So now it's in like a four to six week format. It's been modified and it keeps changing and I keep switching in new modules for the course. But the goal of this course is to help you learn how to handle the Bible so that it can be helpful and hopeful, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. And that if you are interested in that, you can go to EncounterChurch.com forward slash 112. That will point you to a form. You can let us know Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Um, it can be really helpful for you. And if you don't have the, the time in the margin right now to jump into a course, I'm going to invite you in the month of February to engage with me in something called the 28 Days of Prayer. That in the course of February, I want to lead you through with devotional thoughts and with intentional prayer, a journey towards you and I from the inside out being transformed. So regardless of what it is, I want to challenge you to pick one of these two to walk through next month and allow God to begin to equip you with the tools and the ropes that you and I need in order to avoid the pitfalls as we chase purpose. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the way that you uh, are for us. The way that you've paved a path that points us towards hope and life. Thank you, Jesus, that we were your purpose. That for the purpose set before you, you endured the cross. God, thank you that your truth has power. Thank you that you're a God who is with us. And I pray that you would even now encourage us, inspire us, renew us, and help us to be people who experience breakthrough because of you. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here today. Um, we're going to close out with a song today. I think it might be really helpful for some of you.
that maybe as I talked about the pitfalls, you didn't just identify them, you've been living in it, you've been kind of camped out for so long that it's so clear to you which one it is that you struggle with. And I just want to remind you that through that story, there was victory. That Jesus did not just kind of conquer and overcome in that moment, but that ultimately Within three years of that moment, Jesus would be crucified on the cross, put in a grave, and three days later would come out of that grave. And in the course of coming out of that grave, would come with a power and a victory and a strength that he makes available to you and to me. And that your whole, the trap may be strong, the hole may be deep, but I want to say over you and our team sing over you that there is a God of breakthrough, even in the midst of what may feel like a breakdown right now. And that that God of breakthrough is here for you too. And that today as we stand and as we sing and respond, for you to declare, even if it's just the early stages of you coming to terms with the fact that there is a God who's for you, who is with you, and who's come to give you breakthrough, even in the midst of your breakdown. So let's stand as our team leads us to sing.